Hey y'all, for Denver football for the next hour. I'm your host, Will Bazer, and I'm joined alongside by Johnny Brashear and Tim Preston as always. You guys are listening to the Budos Band bringing us in, and we're going to be talking today about Texas basketball. Surprise, surprise. We are going to be getting into Texas taking down TC in West Virginia to basically cement the fourth place while they lost to Baylor. Saying goodbye to the Frank Irwin Center. We'll give you our favorite memories there, as well as taking a look at Kansas going forward and the Big 12 tournament preview as next week we'll be taking a week off as I get prepared for my wedding. Johnny, I'm sorry we didn't extend the same leniency for you. No, I get it. I'm I'm the downtrodden on this on this podcast, so I understand. How did it go? Just let us let the people know. I know you've already told us, but Oh, oh, am I allowed to talk about it now? Okay, all right. I, I, I didn't know, Master. Um, it was, uh, no, it was good. We, we had a good time. Uh, it, the ceremony started somewhere around the time of the West Virginia ending. So I, I didn't see it, but I saw the tweets and everybody freaking out about Texas almost fucking it away. So there we go. Uh, good wedding. I'm glad. I'm glad leading into your wedding. Yeah. Texas basketball was on the mind. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, when, when you're getting ready for a wedding, the, the my getting ready for the wedding compared to my now wife, uh, the time involved is significantly different. Like, uh, 90 minutes before, I'm like, okay, I should probably take a shower and, like, get ready and get going. And then, like, 75 minutes before the wedding, I'm like, okay, I just have to put on the suit. Like, I just... <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much I got going on over here. Uh, There's not not a lot of hair to blow try. Not not a lot not, not a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance over here. Like the the tie was 12% of the time I needed to get ready, and that's you know that's that's about it. Yeah. I don't even know what tie I'm gonna wear. Oh fuck. Uh, you're so you're gonna wear whatever your fiance wants you to yeah. wear. That's whatever she yeah, says, I, my yeah. dude. I have no idea what she wants to do. Yeah, I'm, just go. I'm yeah, send here. send her a text. That she will. Yeah. She's already planned yeah. it. It's already done. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But yeah, it it was good, and uh, Texas won. So hooray on both counts. Hooray! So I mean, let's. You want to get into that? We'll, we'll get into more Johnny's wedding maybe later in the podcast. But we'll talk about the TCU game first. Texas had a pretty close call with TCU at home and really pulled it out in the second half. Y'all, what happened in that game? It was it was close. You know, Johnny's been talking a lot um, over the time that we've been preparing for TCU about how important Miles is, and I thought Miles was terrific in that game, at least for the first 30 minutes. And they got enough playmaking out of him, and then they, you know, they rebounded well. The um, TCU scored kind of late in the clock a few times, and it was close. And then towards the last maybe seven to eight minutes, Texas kind of put the clamps on, and it was enough to, to get it done. Uh, Timmy got to the line, line a lot. He had a big game, I want to say. Shoot, I have it up here. I apologize. But um, Seven, eight from the line. Yeah. One, yeah, one so, of three players know, to go seven of eight from the line. Right. You know, we, we, we shot very well from the line, got fouled a lot. Um, so... You know the both of those pieces of like, hey, we were able to, to kind of make them make life on them pretty difficult on the defensive end for us uh, at the end of the game, and then also we got to the foul line quite a bit and converted very well, and that was kind of it. Now I think that TCU again, if TCU can play a team um, that's maybe a little bit less skilled than us, maybe a little bit less um, fundamentally sound than us, I think TCU is actually a pretty good team. 
but I just think we kind of have that little bit of that secret sauce against them where we're able to sort of execute and produce in some of those tougher moments because of our, uh, we've just got some veteran guys that are pretty skilled in, in those, um, uh, in those, you know, breakdown moments or, or late in the game opportunities. So that was good. You know, I still think that we need to figure out a little bit how to, how to offset some of the teams that can bring that, that dynamic playmaking from the guard position. That's still going to be something that we're going to have to figure out. I thought we did a good job, Ramey in particular, against Kansas. I'm not sure we've done as well since the Kansas game with that. Um, teams have kind of lit us up a little bit from the backcourt positions. But but beyond that, it was it was good to see them take care of that game because that was a game that ensured 500 in the conference. And then obviously the game with West Virginia was, was another step in the right direction. But we needed we needed the game against TCU, and it be, was tougher than I think maybe people thought it would be given how it went in Fort Worth. Fort Worth but, but yeah, it was good. I think um, that game is stays close for longer, if not uh, is a sort of a, a hill for Texas to climb if TCU has a fully healthy Eddie Lampkin. Um, I, I watched that game, and it was pretty clear that he was gutting it out, just sort of trying to help the team, but he's having, I, I want to say it's a knee injury that he was coming back from, um, and, and he just... Because he was not his normal self, one, it allowed Texas to switch guards onto him and cause him some defensive issues. It also made it tougher for him to rebound uh, and get, get rebounds that he normally gets. And so it's just sort of incrementally harder for TCU to pull that game off. Um, but I do think if they had him healthy, full, fully 100% sort of who he is, then this game is is probably down to the last three minutes or so before you know maybe texas texas pulls it out um they you know to texas credit they did do like tip said a, a good job of in the second half sort of halfway through just really clamping down and making things difficult um and that's going to be the, the the formula for texas going forward is it they they're going to have to do that to some teams because their offense is going to be brittle like it always is and there are going to be times when Texas just can't get a bucket because they just is just not very good offensively. Yeah, Texas has actually gotten pretty lucky against TCU when it comes to how healthy their team is. If, if you remember, they basically had their best players out the first time, and then and the injured Eddie Lampkin is basically it, they have two guys who could really hurt Texas, and him with his size and. You know, strength over our big man would have been huge if he was healthy. And but to, to that point, I, I think that the foul trouble that TCU was in caused them a lot of problems as the game went on because Jamie Dixon was having to sort of save guys like Mike Miles and Lampkin and uh, Micah Peavy and Emmanuel Miller. Emmanuel Miller is normally normally plays a lot more minutes than he did, and he's one of those guys who's sort of dynamic enough he could cause Texas problems. Um, but the, all those guys ended up with four fouls on the night and no Texas player did. So it's, it's just sort of one of those, those ways that there's sort of those marginal gains that, uh, Texas was able to capitalize on. I've noticed that recently, two things about the Texas offense I've noticed. That is one of them that they are able to get guys in foul trouble and really draw a lot of fouls. I really wish there was a stat on the normal stat line of fouls drawn. I want to see who's able to get the most fouls drawn because 
it's been huge. I mean, it's part of Chris Beard's game plan is getting fouls drawn on your team. And, you know, it takes guys out of the game. And, it, you know, driving to the basket, taking charges, it, it's working. I mean, Texas won that game because they want 24 for 29 from the free throw line. And... They and, and against West Virginia, they went 22 for 30 yeah. on the free throw line. To, to your point, uh, there is a Ken Palm stat for fouls drawn per 40, and uh, Timmy Allen, Marcus Carr, and Christian Bishop are all ranked in the top 500 nationally uh, in that in that category. And there are other guys who uh, you know do it pretty well as well, like Trey Mitchell. If he was still playing, he'd be up there. He'd actually be higher than Marcus Carr. So there, there are several guys who are good at sort of drawing that contact for sure. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I've noticed about Texas basketball is they are absolutely atrocious at the three point. And it, it completely, I mean, it completely goes against what you should do. Now that we've seen they're drawing 22 to 30 free throws in these past two games in the, in the games against West Virginia and TCU. West West Virginia, they were 8 for 16, but that's because Jace Fravers decided, oh, hey, I'm going to do my job on the team finally. It hit four out of five threes. Jace Fravers this year, what is what is Jace Fravers on this team to do? It's it's to hit the three. And, right? and look beautiful. And look beautiful. He's 30% from three this year in Big 12. And if it weren't for that game, he would be under 30%. So, he, it, thankfully, he, he decided to start hitting threes in this game. And then the offense decided to, eh, we don't want to do that anymore in the second half. But it seems like Texas should start to maybe stop thinking about shooting for the three since they went 7%, 1 for 14 against TCU. They averaged maybe around 30%. And they have games against teams like Kansas and Baylor where they shoot – Three for twenty or three for twenty-two. Yeah, I is, guess is that is it probably a better idea to start taking the two points instead of the three-point shots, even though the three-point shots may be absolutely wide open. Well, so there's there's two things here that uh, not not that I, I disagree with this idea that they might need to be a little more selective about their three-point shots. That's that's fair. Um, I I think. With a team, when they're going against a team like Baylor or Kansas that can keep them out of the paint, a lot of those threes happen because that's the only shot they've got. And they got to shoot something or they're just going to be a shot clock violation. So some of that is the opponent is sort of imposing their will on Texas um, against other teams that, that don't necessarily have the ability to keep Texas out of the paint as reliably. Um, then yes, it's, uh, I think, just generally speaking, offense in the college game works better when you get paint touches. And this is something that, you know, Shaka Smart said, Chris Beard says, you know, most coaches say they want to get paint touches because paint touches collapses the defense and opens up other things. It gets the defense out of position in one way or the other, and offenses can capitalize off that. Whether that's a three or then someone driving behind that guy or, you know, pick and pop or whatever, right? Like there's a variety of ways, but if they, uh, if they can get those paint touches, uh, they should take them. And 
given that this team is not good, generally speaking, at finishing at the rim, from at least as far as the guards are concerned, then they need to use those paint touches as ways to get other dudes open shots. And, you know, maybe it's them getting shots up so that Timmy Allen can come clean up on the offensive glass and and, and put back that way. Maybe it's uh, getting those paint touches so that uh, you can throw up a lob to somebody like DeSue so he can, you know, hit the, you know, he, he can dunk it uh, off the lob. There's, there's other ways you can do it. Um, I think that this is going to be just sort of a recurring problem for Texas because they've got uh, a couple of guys in, in Andrew Jones and Jace Febres who are streaky three-point shooters. Um, Courtney Ramey is a little more consistent, but he's also being asked to do a lot of other things. So he's kind of getting streakier. Marcus Carr is just sort of who he is, and that's not an elite three-point shooter. So Texas by its nature is going to be a streaky three-point shooting team. Um, but especially against the better teams and they basically only got good teams going forward, they're going to have to hit some tough threes or or they're going to be bounced from both of the upcoming tournaments. Well, they have to shoot from outside. And I don't mean they have to make from outside. Of course, we want them to make from outside. But they have to shoot from outside. You just you have to. Like, you can't be a team that lacks the point guard play that we do and that lacks the interior post presence that we do uh, and then not shoot from three. Like, like, we have to find spacing somewhere. And so that three-point shot is it. Now, our our lack of point guard play leads itself to some of the same three-point struggles that we're having um, as a part of the same larger problem because how many times have we seen this year Jace Febris take a three-point shot off of a shot fake, right? He'll shot fake, someone will fly by, he'll reset his feet, and then he'll take a shot. That's I mean, that's not a terrible shot to take, but that's not easy because your body is moving sideways. It's tough to get your momentum going into the shot. You're still trying to kind of be thoughtful about the guy going past you because you don't want him to come back and contest a second shot. Either that or Andrew like taking shots off the bounce or Marcus taking shots off the bounce. Three-point shots that you take off the dribble are just simply almost always a lower percentage shot. Basically, yes, always a lower percentage yep. shot than they are for like yep. catch and shoot. And that's who we are. Like we are a we're a shot fake three point sh- shooting team, or we're a we're a, a off the bounce three point shooting team. That's going to be low. Like even if you're talking about great shooting teams, they're going to shoot lower off of those situations than they will off of a point guard drawing the defense, kicking out, or on some kind of like double skip or reversal, whatever it might be. And because of that, I think that you you take even good shooters, and that kind of situation will make them streaky shooters. But we have to shoot it. <laughs> we have to, because if we don't shoot it, that that gives us less spacing on the interior, which is what's going to help us if we need to if we need to get to the foul line more. It's going to help us to find whatever spacing we can for our ball handlers. Um, I, I just don't think that we can survive without taking those shots. Now, the question is, can we make tough three-point shots? And the nights that we can make some tough three-point shots we can hang with just about anybody given our defensive opportunities. If we can't make tough three point shots, uh, right. And so it just, it's just a question of when, when are we able to kind of make up for some of those deficiencies that we have understanding that like, we're going to have to make some tough three point shots, even in a great game, we're going to have to make some tough three point shots. And if we don't make them, our recipe for success is as we've said over and over and over again, this, this year, eh, not, not the simplest. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is yet again an instance of 
how this offense is sort of just a series of suboptimal solutions, right? Like when you have a guard like Marcus Carr who cannot get into the paint reliably against good teams, then he's not collapsing the defense well enough, which makes it tougher on the three-point shooters. It also makes it tougher for him to uh, garner the attention that will open up weak side passes to to bigs. It makes it tougher for uh, post uh, feeds. It's, you know, like... and these guys don't move the ball around quickly enough because this offense is predicated upon squeezing the life out of the ball for 24 seconds for a shot if they can help it. That that they're just it's all suboptimal. All of this is suboptimal. And like if if we could get all of these guys moving 15% faster, things would open up, right? If if Marcus Carr was 15% quicker, he could get to the rim reliably. Uh, if it if he was able to get to the rim reliably, he could get layups. He could kick out to open guys because help would be collapsing. Like there's just there's a lot of things that could be faster and better, but that's not this team. Well, and and real quickly, uh, sorry, to, like to to harken back to some other teams for us. Isaiah Taylor had some real issues. I think Isaiah Taylor would be our best playmaking guard right now. Yeah, Mike Cabongo had some real issues. He might be our best playmaking guard right now. <laughs> It'd be close at the very least. He wouldn't be noticeably, yep. I don't think, noticeably worse than what we have from that standpoint. Like a guy like Jacobin, for all the defense, or for all the physical issues he had, he would unquestionably be our best offensive playmaker right now. So like, like yep. we're not we're not comparing these guys with TJ because you can't compare them with TJ or even DJ or in some respects like like what we got from Corey and 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 AJ Abrams at, at times, but. Um, we just we don't have that level of playmaking, and it's not just that we don't have like great playmaking. We only kind of have average to sometimes below average playmaking, and that that puts a lot of strain on the rest of the parts of the offense. So Christian Bishop has to be more efficient on the inside. We can't really you know suffer from from AJ just like being cold from three. We can't really suffer from from timmy allen getting blocked from behind like those kind of things become death for us not just like oh a tough minute or two stretch that becomes really tough for us to overcome at all so it just when when you take away that dynamic of any team no matter who you're talking about it's difficult but for a team like us that relies on that because of how much we want to control tempo it's great to control tempo if you can rely on getting good shots at the end of shot clocks but when you can't really necessarily rely on that and you're hopeful that the team is going to foul you, what if the refs swallow, swallow their whistle? What if they get a good block? What if they're just more athletic than you are and can like beat you to the spot? Oh, okay, well, then that, that staple of your offense becomes tougher to rely on, right? So uh, that that kind of piece of it makes makes for quite the slog when it's there. Right, but when you do have a game like Jay's Febbers had against West Virginia, it makes it very easy on offense as shown when they hit 70% of their shots in the first half. Uh, what happened in that second half? Well, what happened for both teams is it became a, uh, you know, one of those Mexican standoffs where like, hey, I don't think you have rim protection. And then they said to us, hey, I don't think you have rim protection. And then both teams were able to to really take advantage of that over and over and over, whether it was us getting to the foul line, whether it was West Virginia converting in the paint. And, and you know, we, we kind of like came and went and came and went. And it felt like we were kind of like perpetually throughout the entire game close to kind of busting it open, but we never could because they just, when West Virginia had to get a, a shot, they got a shot and they were able to convert those shots. And because we couldn't ever stretch that lead out enough, it just felt like we were 
always a little bit better, but not better enough to to distance ourselves. And West Virginia just kept attacking. They really did. And we we just weren't able to find ways to say, hey, you can't hurt us in the paint or we're we're going to be there to stop you. Even against a no middle defense, West Virginia attacked the glass. West Virginia did a good job of like getting some of those shots in the mid range. West Virginia did a good job of like taking that corner when it was there. And that was enough to make it pretty uncomfortable the whole time. Yeah, and Malik Curry absolutely going off in that game. Well, and the more them out. But also, I mean, Timmy Allen kind of showed what he can do against a team that has inferior athleticism. So, and that and that harkens back then again to this idea of what what does it mean when you can get to the paint? <laughs> because when you can get to the paint, the whole world opens up. Because then a defense has to collapse or collapse or a defense has to start rotating and then they start have to start recovering. And when they start recovering, that, that leaves open spots somewhere. And if you pass well enough or if you have someone that can take a shot fake and then get into the lane or whatever, then that gives you a lot of options. So I think that obviously West Virginia is well enough coached that they were able to take advantage of some of that stuff. And, and it was sort of like West Virginia is not, they're not, Texas Tech. Now, obviously, their their record bears that out, but they can't guard you straight up like Texas Tech can. They just don't have that ability this year, and both because they're just not quite there athletically, and because you know their season has gone awry enough. Like they haven't won a game. They've won one game since January 11th. So, <laughs> as as good as I feel about winning that game on the road, and as well as West Virginia played, like they've won a single game since early January. So losing that game would have been far far worse than winning that game was good in many respects. So I was happy about that, but why did Curry get the you know get hot from outside? Because West Virginia could get around us, like they were able to get into our lane touches and paint touches against us, and because they could do that, that put more pressure on us as a recovery and and um, a, a team that was trying to like you know find find shooters in space against ball rotation and you know whenever that happens, no matter what you're talking about, junior high, high school, <laughs> junior varsity, or of course high level D1, that's going to put shooters in a position to be pretty successful. So, um, but yeah, I just, I, it it really felt like both teams were hell bent on saying, oh, apparently they can't stop us inside, and they were both right. We just have to be a little bit more right than West Virginia was. So I I saw someone say that they felt like this was a program turning the corner sort of win and I, I i thought to myself you won by one point against a team that's now three and thirteen yeah, conference <laughs> like how, how did how did you get from here to there <laughs> well and this is this goes back to our last week's comment like the big 12 is kind of sneaky bad like just just tonight like of course people will, will hear this on either thursday or or friday but on Wednesday night, Iowa State scored 36 points at home on senior night. Like, that's bad. West Virginia is... At, it, it, at halftime, right? It was halftime. No, total, total. Okay. And, wow, wow. And West Virginia is, you know, West Virginia is is not even close to the team that they were even last year. And last year, they were just fine. And a few years ago, they were way, way better than they are now. So it's like winning against West Virginia this year is not near the same as it was previous years. So... I, I, like is the Big Twelve good? Yes, no question. But it's also kind of sneaky bad, and uh, and this win would have like you know West Virginia will. I'd say overrated. Overrated is a better way to say it. Yeah, maybe the Big so. Twelve is overrated this year. But like that was a last place yeah. team. 
Like when, when at, at no point over the last decade would we say, oh my gosh, a win against a last place Big 12 team on the road is a huge win. That's just not the case. Even if it's a team right. that has had the success that West Virginia has had over the last decade or so. Like it's just, it's just not like a super impressive, incredible win. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go ahead and, and move forward here. I mean, I did want to talk about Brock, but we got to move on because we got to talk about the Baylor game for a second, right? First off, it was legit. Brock and Brock and his reputation flagrant. Yes, yes. Baylor Baylor comes into Austin, and it's a really close game. They Texas almost pulls it out. They're leading for a good portion of that game. And it and it looks like Texas has the, you know, the momentum to pull it off, but then in the last like, I think it was in the four minutes, Baylor goes on a seven point run, because Texas can't go up strong with the ball. They get the ball poked. They don't have any ball security, and basically Baylor is just able to to wait them out. After that. I mean, it wasn't like Baylor just was absolutely storming on offense. It was Texas mistakes consistently kicking them in the butt that basically ended that game. Is that right? Would you would you agree that that's ultimately was the downfall of Texas in that game? So there's there's a couple different angles to look at this. Uh, the the first of which is that um, I, I think a, b- a lot of balls on both sides got poked away because there was a lot of fouling happening on both sides, right? Like this is not a, the refs are favoring one team or another complaint. This is a, the refs let it, these teams just beat the crap out of each other inside. It was it, like it, a football game. It was, it, it was like Matthew Meyer should have fouled out when like 12 minutes. Um, there are a number of Texas players that probably should have fouled out, uh, super early. They, they just let, it was any, anytime they went in the paint, dudes just were hacking and smacking each other. And there were, you know, like it's one thing to try and swipe and steal the ball. It was like, there were, there were a number of instances where it felt like, uh, the team was trying to swipe the ball. And if they got your hand and half your arm, whatever, nobody's calling anything. So there's that. And I think that contributed to the, lack of offense on both sides because frankly both teams were allowed to just murder each other um i mean if and you don't even have to look in the paint like if you watch the way james akinjo guarded marcus carr he was in his shirt like constantly and in a way that if refs were calling freedom of movement fouls the way they should be he probably gets whistled a couple extra times because he was right up in there and that's you know Credit to James Akinjo because he, he saw nobody's calling that, so I might as well make Mark's car's life's hell, uh, his, his life mail. Uh, Christian Bishop also had an amazing game because, again, anytime the refs swallow their whistle, Christian Bishop can bully the shit out of some people. Like, he's really good at being physical, and if they're not going to call it, then put Bishop in and let him just beat some people up. Great. Um, so, there's that. I. I, there was no point in this game where I felt like Baylor was going to lose, personally. Like, I just, because I want, you know, I uh, one, I know this is sort of a, 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 a I don't want to call it a, a bias necessarily, but like, I believe Baylor is a clearly better team than Texas is. So part of this is like watching a, you know, if you watch an Oklahoma football game and they're, 
up 10 to seven at, at the half against New Mexico state, you're like, okay, so at some point this is going to break open, right? Like even, even if it's tight, you, you know, it's going to break open. And that's what happened in the second half. And, and Texas had some of the, you know, some of their best games from some people. Like they, they had some guys playing legitimately well, like Christian Bishop played really well. Um, you know, uh, Devin Askew actually had a pretty solid game in limited minutes. Um, you know, Courtney Ramey was making life difficult for guys on defense. There, there were there were good game or good games being played by individual players. The defense being played was really solid, uh, and yet it's like I, I watched the first half and I'm thinking, okay, well, Texas has had just about everything go their way that can go their way outside of being like super hot from three, and then at halftime it's like, what is it like a three point lead? And I'm like. Eh. I feel bad about this. <laughs> so I, I just kept waiting. And, you know, when, if you take these two teams and you flip Marcus Carr and James Akinjo, I think Texas wins this game. If you take, uh, you know, like, like Kendall Brown and swap him with, I, I don't know, Mark, Timmy Allen or somebody, I, I think Texas wins this game, but they don't have those guys. Baylor has those guys. And so because they have those guys, uh, even if those guys have up and down games, there's going to be a point in which they take over. Like I'll give Texas a lot of credit in that they understood at some point that it, early in the game, that James Akinjo is going to get to the paint whenever he feels like, because that's what he did in the first game. And so they aggressively trapped him and they aggressively doubled him and said, you got, you can't, you're not getting in the paint. Somebody else may get there, but you're not getting there. And that stymied Baylor fairly well in the first half so that was a good move but eventually they adjusted because Baylor was trying to do against Texas what they did against Kansas in in getting Akinjo going and Texas's answer was no we're just going to double Akinjo super super you know super aggressively and then in the second half Baylor went oh yeah you know we'll go back to doing our other stuff and suddenly it's like oh well all right we we don't have that option anymore um so yeah it was it was a good effort by Texas. They tried hard and they made it tough, but the better team won. I mean, honestly, it was a great game plan by Texas in this game. It was a really good game plan. Texas was well on their way to win. But Andrew Jones went 0 for 7 from 3. Jace Fevers went 1 for 6 from 3. Courtney Ramey went 0 for 2. 2 for 10 on the floor. Nobody could hit a shot. And honestly, they they put themselves in some bad situations and threw up some bad shots. But a lot of those threes were wide open threes. Ones that you are, it's it's you in the basket. You sit in the gym all day long taking those shots. And the fact that they missed those shots, you can't blame Chris Beard for that. You can't really drive on on a team like Baylor as easily as you could a team like West Virginia or TCU. As we were talking about, you have to make those shots. Going three for 22, I mean, yeah, they hit one at the very end, but going really three for 22 against air is unacceptable, to be honest. And it's the reason they lost. Well... I agree with you. They lost, but they lost because Baylor's better. <laughs> and so, so when I, what I, what, yeah, what I would say about both what you and Johnny said is, I think that there's a a, a big time combination. Like it's almost all both. <laughs> 
So Johnny's right. Like I actually, I think that Texas's game plan in this, or well, that's that's partially true. Texas's game plan was terrific, terrific. I liked the wrinkle of throwing in the the double teams early. I thought that we tried to like get out and like have that energy early as well. So the coaching staff was was an A plus from both standpoints. Both I liked the way that we had a game plan with that, and I liked that obviously the team was fired up, like we were ready to go, like we had that great energy and it was there. Um, because I think we have to, like you you have to figure that you have to bring it more than opponent more than an opponent like Baylor if you're Texas this year. You can't say, oh, we're going to match you slug for slug, punch for punch, execution for execution. We, we can't. We can't do that. So we didn't try to do that. We tried to make it a little bit ugly. We tried to put them in some spots where they had to like have their playmakers either try to split screens or or pass out of screens. And we did a good job of playing passing angles. And, you know, I thought we were pretty effective. And then, <laughs> tragically, it's like, oh, they're more athletic. Oh, they're more skilled. Oh, they have better finishing ability. Oh, they have better three-point shooters. And I think that like uh, the, the cumulative effect of us playing that entire game, feeling like, yes, were there some open shots? There certainly were. But also, Baylor did a better and better job as the game went on because they had better athletes than us. They contested better as the game went on. And because we kind of were a little bit um, streakly bad early in the game with threes, I think that that kind of compounded itself, and Baylor was able to then close out better against us as the game went on, and then we kind of got worse because their defense was even better as time went on. It's like we we were never able to find our footing because they they were doing a very good job of of uh, giving us three point shots that they want, if that makes sense. Like they want. Any defense kind of wants, uh, understands that they're going to have to give up something. You can't limit everything. Like, you can't be a no-middle defense and guard the three-point line very well. You can't be a team that, like, that gets out to 26 feet and guard the paint. Like, something's got to give. Um, but when it did give, we were kind of shitty <laughs> from the outside. Not kind of. We were, we were quite shitty from the outside. And then as the game wore on and their athletic advantage kind of like kept on manifesting itself we didn't have an answer and so so both of an impact of yeah they were able to kind of finish in the paint better than we were yeah they were able to to shoot from three better than we were yeah they were able to kind of take away some of our looks in the paint better than you know better than we were able to finish in the paint and that kind of stuff just when, when our energy was better and we were able to rely on our game plan awesome but as the game wore on and they figured us out and their athleticism like kind of overtook our energy, unsurprisingly, we just we didn't finish the last five or seven minutes of games. Similarly to what happened for us in a positive way against TCU. So it just sort of like, hey, we're kind of better than TCU. And it seems like Baylor is just kind of better than us. And that's what it ended up being. So that was the last game for Texas basketball in the Frank Irwin Center. What are your favorite memories there? So, uh, not basketball related. Uh, I saw when I was in high school, I saw Jimmy Page and Robert Plant there, which was really cool. Um, the, the seats were not great because, well, honestly, most seats in the drama aren't great, but especially it was, you know, they were, they were cheap seats. So we we got in where we could get in. Um, that was cool. Uh, basketball wise, so there, there's two. Um, 
the the one that that is game related is that um there was a point in uh was it 99 i guess so i think rick barnes was already there or no 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 i'm sorry this is pender was still pender's was still there and this was right before things started really unraveling and this is he had luke axtell and he had some other guys and like people were super hyped and uh, it was it was at the point where uh, anytime Luke Axtell would check in, the entire crowd would go Luke, and that's you know it was, it was, it was before the fax machine, um, and um, that was also the game where uh, Mac Brown was introduced as the at halftime, and everybody went ape shit and started talking about how we're definitely winning a national title in the next five years, and it was just a lot of optimism and you know, hubris and everything, but it was great. It was, you know, everybody's super enthusiastic. Mac walked out and gave the hook and said folksy stuff. And we all ate it up out of a fucking spoon because of course we did. Uh, we got done with how many years of John Makovic and him just sort of being a sloth. And so now we're, you know, we got Mac and everything's amazing. Um, not specifically game related is that, uh, when the, BMW team went to the Elite Eight and lost to Arkansas. Uh, they came back and there was a, um, a sort of a massive celebration in the drum, which had, I, I don't know how many thousands of people. It's been so long that it's it was several thousand people that, that were in that place because we were all super starved for positivity <laughs> in Texas sports right around then. And... Um, we got to, you know, they, they brought the team out and, you know, people talked and then they had a, a line to get autographs. And I had a program from that year that I, I, I told, I, like, I basically strong armed my dad into getting me down there for that. And we sat and stood in the line for forever and got the, uh, autographs from basically the entire team. So there's, you know, blanks, maze, right, bunch of other guys on there, and I still have that uh, program, and I I might uh, be more attached to that than uh, I don't know the title to my house. Um, <laughs> so uh, that that would be my favorite, probably my favorite memory there. Um, so I obviously I lived in Texas till I was about twelve, and uh, we were in Austin till I was eight, and then San Antonio till I was twelve. And we did not go back and watch a ton, but um, the last time that I went back and watched a game uh, live at the Irwin Center when I was before, like, I, so I went back in college and saw a game that uh, TJ's sophomore year that Texas played, and that was like a, against Tarleton State, like it was like a an exhibition game. I went back to Austin for like in November or whatever of that year, so that been two thousand and two. Um, so the other only other game that I watched was in let's see it would have been February of 1997 I want to say we were there my my cousin was uh graduating from UT he um anyways he was graduating from UT that later that year and uh but he had already like phys- like he'd already like gotten enough credits to graduate so he was like going to walk in May but he was kind of done and it just sort of happened that we could like get there at that time so we went back, and then Texas played uh, Texas Tech, who I want to say was ranked even at the time, and that was the year that Texas went to um, that uh, that we went to the Sweet Sixteen. 
off of the uh, Reggie Freeman block at the end of the game against Coppin State, I want to say it was. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, so that was, you know, it was one of those times where, like, you know, A, it was fun, um, and it was just sort of like a very formative time for me because I, I played basketball uh, when I was in high school, but we had, like, a week off, like, it's kind of like one of those things, like, it just kind of happened to, to fit, like, my family went down there, and I had always loved Texas, but I'd also moved away from the state, and it was kind of like, you know, when, when you live in, in a different state than the team that you're rooting for, especially a college team, your friends and family are like, what the hell, like, what's going on, you know, and obviously it was hard to watch Texas games at that point on, on, on TV, because they were still in the SWC in the Southwestern Conference, and, um, you know, it wasn't like, oh, in the Big 12, you're on, like, on ESPN constantly, and they had beaten North Carolina the year before, uh, um, so that was a cool game on on national TV. But otherwise, it was like you know, you I, at that point I was still looking in the newspaper to find out Texas scores the day after. It wasn't like I was watching on TV and following along closely. But so to go down to the game and not just to like to have a game that I watched be so cool, but also like Texas was playing a ranked team and they won and they kind of won easily and it just sort of like validated all this excitement that I had for Texas basketball. Like, oh, this is like, yeah, I am right to like Texas. I am right to like to hold on to my roots of a Texan and and feel like this place that I was born and, and have so much connection to. This is the right call. If they got shit on, <laughs> who knows where I'd be today? But uh, it was a fun game and obviously like Reggie Freeman remains probably like borderline my favorite. Like, I don't know. I, I love watching him play. Uh, he was he was a guy that I think. You know, came from that lineage of, of New York guards that came to Texas underneath Penders, and and that was just sort of like that hard edge, but also playing fast and and was dynamic all over the court, like could defend, but also, anyways, it was he was a lot of fun to watch. So it was it was cool to be a part of that and to to sort of have again that that part of not only a fun team to to care about, but also oh this this thing that like matters to me matters to me for kind of a fun good reason. So. That's that's probably my number one. Not as not as cool as Johnny's, but also uh, something that was pretty personal to me. But I mean, there are some cool moments I I didn't know about, like at night. So February nineteenth, nineteen ninety seven, Jordan, Dennis Jordan tips in an Al Coleman missed jumper with three point three seconds left to give Texas a dramatic fifty seven to fifty six upset over number seven Iowa State. At the Frank Irwin right, State. so I was See, not there. Texas at that teams game. couldn't score back then too. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't there at that game. And Dennis Jordan was a was a very highly ranked um, JUCO recruit, if I remember correctly. Both him and Sonny Alvarado were both guys that came in for Penders and um, and were ranked very highly, like like the top center prospects from JUCO around that time frame. But Dennis Jordan was like never actually all that great for us. He was fine, but didn't like pan out in the way that you think so. And he was a bigger kind of a, he didn't really fit the Texas mold at that point. Cause he's kind of big and burly. I want to say he was probably like, I don't know, six, eight two forty or something like that, which at that time was a pretty large individual, like kind of an Oliver Miller ish, although not near the kind of outside game that Miller ended up having. So he was someone that didn't necessarily impact games in the way that we thought that he would. So that when he tipped that ball game, it was kind of like, Oh, let's go. You validated yourself. Like this was what we brought you here for. So, and that was a really good Iowa State team. They had they were tremendous, right? They had like Kelvin Cato, Dedrick Willoughby, J.C. Holloway, Kenny Pratt. Um, uh, anyways, they were they were very good. That was a that was a team that um, that was uh, kind of preceded some of the like what was the next guy that was there for 
Marcus, like that was before the Marcus Pfizer time there at Iowa State. So, but yeah, Dennis Jordan getting that shot was awesome. That was a that was a big time shot, and it was a kind of a tip in, right? So like he like stretched out this big long arm and just sort of tipped it in from like three or four feet, I want to say, and it was it was a it was a pretty uh, triumphant end to that game. I mean, talking about uh, Sonny Alvarado, the 1995 game where he posted 20 points and 14 rebounds to lead Texas to the 74-72 upset over number 11, North Carolina. Texas has their number. And they had Vince Carter and Antoine Jameson on that team. UNC did. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've talked about that game on our podcast before. That was one of the first games there in Iowa. I want to say like 1995. The guy that I remember for sure from from North Carolina that year was Dante Calabria, <laughs> who was a, like a six foot three white guy with like super floppy hair, a really good three point shooter. Um, we had just moved uh, not too long before that to the, our new house in Iowa that we were living at. My dad got a was a pa- is a was a pastor when he was a when he was working as a professional, and we just got moved to a new church. And so I was sitting upstairs in my new bedroom, watching on my little TV, and watch that game. I want to say North Carolina was ranked 15th in the country for that game. That sounds right. Um, and it was at Texas, and uh, I want to say Brandy Perriman maybe hit a, a late shot in that game, uh, or at least he was he was pretty influential in that game when that came through with that one. So yeah, that was a good one. That was a great game. And Sonny, I mean, yeah, it was... It, I mean, some of the best games at the Frank Irwin Center were wins over North Carolina, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, you think about the, the Javon Felix win. Or, Javon yeah, Felix, exactly. Absolutely. With the last second last second three. You know, there, there's other games that y'all would probably be more, more aware of, uh, like in 1991 when Texas beat number three Arkansas in the final regular season game. Uh, they beat them 99-86. to 86. And they sell out crowd and Frank Irwin. Yeah, that was Johnny's senior year at UT, so he'd be <laughs> <laughs> son of a bitch. Um, so it was the first time in school history that Texas recorded twenty wins in three consecutive seasons. So Johnny, yeah. that was a perfect time. Yeah, uh, I mean that's you know Tom Penders is the reason why a lot of people got into Texas basketball in the first place because before him there was it was extreme it was. It was a, sort of a desert with the occasional oasis prior to him. Um, I I don't really remember that game specifically. The, the Arkansas game I remember. And I, to give some context for people who are um, young whippersnappers, uh, Arkansas in the Southwest Conference is basically what Kansas is in the Big 12. They were, or Kentucky in the SEC. They were the dominant team. They were the clear favorites most years. And this was... As you know, Nolan Richardson was really getting things rolling right as the around the time he started uh, vying for national titles and and going to Final Fours and like they they were really really starting to get rolling and um, you know when you combine that with the fact that Texas and Arkansas had been Southwest Conference rivals for forever in football like it just sort of mixed to be this this you know it it was uh, it was always feisty um, and there was a game in in Austin the year before where uh, Texas was up late against Arkansas and they were leading and we thought the game was like it was real close to being in the bag and Travis Mays had a pair of free throws with I don't know a minute or so left and he missed them both and Arkansas came back and tied it and they went into overtime and won that game and it was crushing on so many different levels. It, you know, the, the the closest thing it reminds me of is 
that time uh, when Matt Coleman Matt was a Coleman, freshman you son of a at bitch. Tech. Yeah, <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> it was like that, but imagine the you know the the, the emotions you have have wrapped up in it when you're like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, like it's sort of that level, and it was just the crying kid in the OU game or whatever, right? So. Yeah, yeah, per- yeah, pretty close to that. It was ju- it was more just screaming at the sky, like well, you know, there is no God. Um, it was you know hated Nolan Richardson back then. Um, yeah, but it, that's that's the game. That's the Arkansas game that, that always comes to mind first because it was so close to like finally getting over that hump and just just didn't. Here's another big upset was in 2004. And this is kind of the area, like, I do want to know what your favorite like TJ Ford moment at the Frank Irwin Center, but PJ Tucker was also a big part of those early years. And when he had 21 points against the number four Wake Forest team in the Frank Irwin Center and beat them 94 to 81. Uh, what do y'all remember that game, or do y'all remember any other TJ Ford games? Well, that game with PJ was awesome, and that was one of those years where, um, you know, we we didn't so T so when when so obviously that at that point I want to say TJ was already drafted right. He so he got drafted in. Uh, he would have got drafted in June of 2003, so they would have like been. What were they? Were they honoring him at that point for that game? Or were they retiring uh, they his number? They honored TJ that year. Yeah, against Oklahoma. It. Okay, so uh, so the PJ one. So PJ came in from a from a school named Enlo, right? So Enlo in North Carolina. He was from Raleigh, uh, and at that point, actually, when when he came from Raleigh, I was living in North Carolina in a town called New Bern. And I, uh, we had some kiddos that worked on the staff that I was working on, uh, that were, um, that I was supervising and they knew him. They like went to, they, they played against him. I don't think they like went to Enlo, but they, they knew him from that. And he was like a, like a middle level three-star recruit when he came to Texas. And so when he played as well as he did that, his freshman year is like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Um, but he had a, he had like a coast to coast finish at Providence that year, won the game, like as the buzzer kind of sounded and that Wake Forest team had Chris Paul on it, right? So that seems crazy to think about that Chris Paul is still so uh, so relevant today in uh, in the NBA game. But uh, that was a that was a big game for Texas too, and and no one really knew what was going to happen when TJ left. Like how how was Barnes going to how was Barnes going to kind of like like cope without this you know this superstar player? Because for as good as as that team was um, with TJ without TJ the year before. Uh, his freshman year, Texas was the five seed and got shit on by Temple in the tournament. And so it was like, oh, are we going to be good? And then we were quite good. Like, I want to say we made it to the Sweet 16, lost to Xavier that year. And and so that really kind of catapulted us. Hey, we being with TJ was awesome, but we can also kind of still do some things without him. And the problem with PJ was, of course, like it, it's, I don't know, it's not super fair to him. Well, it is, it is fair because he stopped going to class. <laughs> yeah. So when he stopped, yeah, going he to stopped class, cracking a book. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then it ended up like being uh, ineligible the last half of his, of his sophomore season uh, was, was, you know, not, not a great look for him, but obviously he, he definitely was a terrific player. And then, uh, you know, was a big part of us getting to lead eight his, his junior year. And, and look, kudos to him. When he was stopped going to class, like he went back to the Austin Community College, like got himself eligible and was ready to play the next year. So a lot of players would be like, fuck it. I'm going to Israel. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to go play overseas. I'm going to do something else. Like I'm, I'm done with this. And he got himself back on track. And, and obviously Texas was a lot better for it. He's been a big ambassador for Texas too since he's gone to the pros. So I do want to start looking a little bit forward because the next year uh, after this list that I caught all these games was 2000. 
6, 2007. That's the year of Kevin Durant and the win, the double overtime win over number seven Texas A&M in the Frank Irwin Center. Yeah, him and AC Law. What's your favorite memory? What is your favorite memory about Kevin Durant and his time at Texas, the Frank Irwin Center, and about that game? Well, just, you know, just the excitement, honestly. And obviously that, that for all the, the negativity that happened in the 2010-11 season when Texas... Johnny is done. Yeah. <laughs> He's sick of hearing me talk about this shit. Um, you know, as, as, as frustrating as the loss was to Arizona in 2011, that's also kind of like how heartbreaking it was to get pooped on by USC with like OJ Mayo and stuff like that. It was, that was just a difficult loss because you knew how gifted we were, um, you know, and obviously it's, it's tough to be all that great when you're counting on freshman Durant, freshman DJ Augustine, freshman Damian James, sophomore AJ Abrams. And we were feeling the fact that we were that young, but, um, but man, like the promise that Texas had, because that was right when we were really getting to be particularly awesome. Like we had kind of dropped some games early in the season, but they were really coming into their own. And, and Kevin Durant was like, no, man, I'm a force. Like I'm legitimately like maybe the best player that's ever played this game. Uh, so to watch him sort of come into his own with that and to feel like, hey, this is this is the best Texas A&M team ever. And to still kind of like, cut their hearts out in that game was really fun. So to... To feel like, hey, we we've we've got a team that can do that, and like like on the heels of Sweet Sixteen, Final Four, Sweet Sixteen, Elite Eight, and and we're gonna, you know, hey, the sky's the limit for us. It felt pretty awesome to to have that, and then like you know you, then we beat Kansas that year, and then that you know that big lead at halftime in the Big Twelve Championship game. Again, it felt like the world was our oyster, and that we were this is what it's gonna be. We're gonna be this awesome forever. So, and last question about the Frank Rowan Center: Who was the best player to have ever touched that floor? Outside of Kevin Durant and TJ Ford. The best player other than Kevin and, and TJ that played. Hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to zag. I guess for Texas. Cause I was going to say like yeah. Vince Carter. <laughs> I'm going to zag like. here. I'm going to say, so my, my very favorite one was, um, was BJ Tyler. So I, I don't know that he was the best, but I will say that my, my favorite player that I like grew like, looked up to the most when I was growing up because he was about the same height that I ended up being in high school and he was playing uh, a big role for Texas like right in my formative years when I really was into watching him play um and it felt like it felt kind of cool to watch Texas even as an Iowan that was pretty neat so for me it was BJ Tyler although I know there were a lot of good like you could name a lot of good players and I, I won't name them because I wanted Johnny to have a chance to say his own but for me it was it was him yeah Travis Mays like that was he he was sort of the head of the snake on the BMW stuff back when uh, Texas believed in fast offense, which it's been about 20 years since that's been the case. Um, 20, 30. Uh, well, no, nah, I mean, you know, you know, Penders was there into the mid-90s, so, you know, not okay. quite yet at 30s. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, no, it was uh, – they, they, they were fun teams to watch. They, they were – uh, they played fast. They trapped a lot. They, you know, they gave up a lot of points, but they scored even more, and it was a, a lot more fun than fifty six, fifty four. So, let's go ahead and look forward in this season. Back, back to the two thousand eight, two thousand nine season. Tim, yes, Tim. <laughs> sorry, Kansas. I'm sorry to take us away from sort of the nostalgic, feel good stuff. There's no way we sweep Kansas, right? That would be amazing if we did. That would be four in a row, two sweeps, but it's their senior night. They haven't lost that 
in what would be 30, I think, nine years, there's no way it's happening, right? 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 I think it's unlikely, but the the two caveats I would put. uh, One is that this will be their fourth game in about eight days, give or take. So they have played a lot of games and they're not, they're, they're not playing against scrubs, right? Like they just lost to TCU in Fort Worth. They got to play TCU in Lawrence. Uh, they played Baylor a little over a week ago um, or, you know, several days ago. So, you know, even with, with their depth, Bill Self is still playing these guys a lot. Um, they're still playing, playing starters pretty heavy minutes and um so they might they you know they might have some dead legs that's that's entirely possible um the 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 other piece that uh and i'll let tim sort of talk about this in a minute is that i i think as as athletic as kansas is their defense is a little uh a little substandard for a team ranked as high as they are and they can be beat um, it's, you know, I, I'm never going to pick Texas as the favorite going into Lawrence just because it's Lawrence and it's been a house of horrors for the most part for Texas. And you have to have a significantly better team than Kansas to even consider being the favorite in that place. Um, plus, like you said, it's senior night and Kansas due to their loss to TCU now has to win out to make sure they win the conference. So they will be plenty motivated. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be definitely uphill. They play more risky than they should defensively, which I don't know if that's, a um, if that's because of their personnel or because that's what the, this coaching staff thinks they should do, or maybe they can't play more, um, inside of a, a more structured defense, but I've been surprised about that. I, I was first surprised about that in Austin, and I've been surprised about that a few times after that for them. So if they play that haphazardly defensively, we have a good shot. I'm not Maybe not a good shot, but a, a, a real shot. But I I don't know. It'll be tough because that, that, that crowd is being ready to rock, and they're plenty talented, and they, uh, I think winning championships as far as like regular season stuff matters to them especially what happened with Baylor last year and Tech a few years ago. So I'm sure they would like to reestablish their dominance. So it would be tough for Texas for sure. As much as I would like for Texas to beat Kansas and to sweep them two years in a row, it would be better if Texas faced them in the tournament on a neutral, quote-unquote neutral ground and since it would be a better matchup for them than Baylor, uh, if Texas beats TCU, in the well, tournament. so uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. In in that, honestly, in that circumstance, then you forty chess, Johnny. Forty chess. Forty here. chess is yes. Then you want to lose to Kansas, so they're the one seed uh, in the tournament. So you potentially face them in the sec, the well, technically the third round, the semifinal of the Big Twelve tournament. So you can try and beat them there. I yeah, I I would rather Texas just try and beat Kansas anytime they can try and beat Kansas um, because. You know, as we're getting into seeding talk, as we're getting into the conference tournament talk, um, that if you can beat Kansas once, uh, you know, in the upcoming week, great. If you can beat them twice, even better. So, uh, you know, just 
stop playing chess, just maybe checkers is fine and just try and beat the team in front of you. True, but I mean, let's take a look at the TCU game coming up. I mean, we just played them. Eddie Lampkin getting any better uh, in next week? What's what's the feeling going into the Big 12 tournament? Yeah, he was, I mean, he, he's been, he was good against, he was in against Tech in their win against Tech. He was, uh, played a lot in their win against Kansas. He was one of the guys who could kind of keep David McCormick at bay, which helped TCU's chance, and they ended up winning that game. Um, TCU is quietly having one of their best seasons in history. Um, I mean, maybe not that quietly, but it's it's relative to sort of the noise of the Big 12. The fact that TCU is basically guaranteed to get in, well, maybe not guaranteed, but they're just about guaranteed to get in the NCAA tournament at this point, that makes it by default one of the best seasons they've ever had because they just haven't made the NCAA tournament often. Um, and, you know, they've beaten four, I want to say it's four top 10 teams this year. Uh, so they're plenty capable. Um, I, I do think that Tim is correct that, that Texas has sort of a, uh, a specifically decent matchup against TCU. And I think, um, I think Texas should be the, the mild favorite in that game. Um, and they're definitely playing TCU because there's like less than a 2% chance that TCU is not the fifth seed. So, and Texas is hundred percent locked into the fourth seed. So, um, they'll play that 1130 AM game against, uh, TCU and then play probably Kansas next. Um, you know, unless there's some crazy upset, um, I, well, I, I should say assuming Texas wins because Chris Beard is one in four lifetime in the Big 12 tournament, and that includes losses to teams much worse than this TCU team. So I, I, I don't have a good explanation for why Chris Beard is just not good in the Big 12 tournament to date, uh, other than sort of small sample size problems. But even the year that they went to the national title game, they got bounced in the first round by West Virginia. So... I'm I'm not counting my chickens on that one by any stretch. I think a lot of times in in contests like that, especially like you know one day, next day, next day, when you're playing three or four games in in three or four days, I think that boils down to who has the best like individual players. I'm not sure Texas has that. We have a lot of collective good talent. I'm not sure we have um, individual guys that can take over a game like Matt did last year against tech. And then he played incredible against um, Oklahoma state. So did Jericho Sims in that game. So I don't know that we have a player that can do that kind of thing. I mean, maybe TG or Timmy could, if things went just right, but I don't know that I could say that I would ever count on that because Timmy's a little bit more dependent upon the kind of game. And then, you know, can Marcus or Andrew or, or, Courtney really take over a game like that? Not necessarily. They can be very good, but I'm not sure they can really dominate in that way. So I'm not sure that this is a team that is exactly built to win three games in three days. I'd love to see it happen. Um, but as Johnny said, I think it's I think it's very likely that, that Texas will have a good opportunity against Texas uh, Christian. Um, if we find ourselves against Tech or Baylor or Kansas in the next round, I think it'll be going to be kind of a tougher because if you... Take all the players on both teams. Ogbaji is the best player when we play Kansas. And Flagler and Akinjo would be the best players when we play Baylor. And I suppose Williams would be the best player if we play Tech. So like if you have a if we are if we are not putting out the best player in all those games, it'd be tough for us to say, hey, we're gonna take those down. So I hope we do, but it's it's tougher when you have a 
when you're playing against teams that have guys that can that can dominate like they have guys that can. Yeah, at this point, Texas has three guaranteed games left, and it is the uh, the game against Kansas, the first Big 12 tournament game, and the first NCAA tournament game. Anything beyond that is up to them. What are the chances you're giving Texas here? How far do you think they're going? And who do you I don't, I don't think there are any dream matchups for Texas in the Big 12 at this point because they're not going to face, like, Oklahoma. Like, I guess if Oklahoma uh, makes it out of the, like, I think they still might make the 8-9 game. It's, you know, it's sort of up in the air at this point. Um, if they make the 8-9 game and somehow knock off Kansas, then okay, then Texas could make it to the final maybe. But I, I would be surprised if Texas plays more than two games in the Big 12 tournament. Um, they they just there's not enough extra teams for Texas to sort of make a run up to that point before they run into one of those sort of top three NCAA tournament seeds that that await you know in the semifinals and Texas is just not proven to be good enough to beat those kind of teams consistently. So I I would be surprised if they made it to the final, which is weird to say for a team that's fourth, right? So like like when you're talking about a team that's seated that high, they should theoretically be pretty at least somewhat likely to win uh one in 20 they could if, get past tcu but it's just the next three teams in front of them are really really good right what what are the chances that we beat kansas for a second or third time uh i don't know what are the if we do beat them what are the chances that we beat either tech or baylor for the first time again i'm, I'm not sure i don't think the losses to beck to, to, to beck to tech or baylor were flukes like that was those were better teams than us that's just what it is now i think kansas is a better team than us too but we match up pretty well against them so it's possible but you know for us to kind of to beat a team like tcu and beat a team like kansas and then beat either tech or baylor that'd be uh, i don't know be a pretty uh pretty incredible set of circumstances not incredible but pretty pretty great set of circumstances for us so now you know last year you think you know Baylor won the tournament like the the NCAA tournament, but they we didn't play Baylor last year. We played Oklahoma State, so who knows what happens? Maybe a team kind of comes up, but I do think that the haves versus have-nots this year in the Big Twelve make it unlikely that we would play a team like like Johnny said, like Oklahoma or like Iowa State. It just seems unlikely, so I, I doubt that would be the case. So because it's it's less likely this year to have some of those upsets, I'm guessing it won't it won't favor us in the way that we would like for it to. Texas somehow plays TCU and then Oklahoma and then West Virginia <laughs> for the Big 12 title. Oh, man. Well, anything can happen in March, am I right? Ba- banner- banners have no asterisks. <laughs> Hang that banner. <laughs> anything can happen in March. But I, speaking of March, how do you think this tournament could affect Texas's seeding going into the tournament? Do you think, do you think they're stuck? I think yeah, they're I think stuck they around 5-4. Like five bottom four. I I think uh, I would not be surprised after this week uh, heading into the tournament uh, or heading into the Big 12 tournament if Texas is not a six on a lot of brackets because um, they're currently like right in the middle of the fives. If you aggregate what bracket matrix has, um, there are some fours. There's a few more sixes. So given that they are probably going to lose to Kansas, which means they've lost two of their last three and that, you know, they'll be down to, was it like five of the last eight they've lost that they're kind of on a little bit of a downward trajectory and they haven't beaten the teams other than TCU that, that are sort of likely tournament teams that would help push them up. So, I, I mean, I think if let, let's just 
for, for the sake of this hypothetical, say that Texas loses to Kansas this weekend um, and goes into the Big 12 tournament. At that point, they have theoretically opportunities to move up. Um, they're sort of sitting on that 5-6 line. Uh, they could possibly move up to a 4 if they get to the final or they you know win the Big 12 tournament because then they'll have probably beaten two likely protected seeds uh, in you know Baylor, Tech, or Kansas to get that title. So they might move up into a four. Uh, I don't think there's anything in there that can move them up to a three unless there's just havoc ahead of them. Um, but on the other side, if they lose to Kansas and they lose to TCU, I don't think a seven is out of question. I, I think it's maybe unlikely, but not out of question, especially because there are there are seeding rules that go into who can be in what region, and I could see a team like Texas when the the tournament looks at their sort of recent trajectory and said, "Well, if there's a six, we got to move down. We'll move them down to a seven, kind of thing." So, I still feel like this team ends up a six. I could absolutely see a five. That's that's very likely. Uh, that that wouldn't surprise me. I could maybe see a seven if they get bounced by TCU. Um, a four is going to have to take something pretty significant in my eyes. So I, I think they're probably sitting somewhere in the five to seven and, and five or six is, is definitely the fat part of the belt. So if they beat Kansas at Kansas, I think a five is still the most likely. If they lose at Kansas, I think six is the most likely. A four and seven, as Johnny said, is possible. So so I guess I would say probably six, yeah. five, four, seven would be the way I'd rank them. But uh, – you know, it's a toss-up. I, I I agree with Johnny. I think the range is somewhere between a four and a seven, and a six or a five would be my my you know, where I'd put m- the most money if I were a betting man. Uh, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this up now. We'll, we'll get more into it as we're doing sort of our pre-tournament thing. Um, I am sort of I, I'm 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 worried about Texas being like a six. Um, a little less so about if they're a five. I'm very worried if they end up a six or seven because that's when they start getting paired up with tens and elevens, which is where you will find a lot of underperforming high majors who have a lot of talent and may have not put it all together. And I'm thinking of like Memphis and UNC and teams like that, or maybe even Michigan State where, or I'm sorry, not Michigan State, Notre Dame, where they're they're going to probably get in and they might end up in the first four. And they like, it's just teams like that, that in a, in a single elimination tournament, I am really worried about facing teams with, uh, uh, on par or superior athleticism to Texas that might just not have put it all together very often because in a tournament setting, all it takes is them doing it once and Texas goes home real early. So, um, I saw somebody put uh, Texas as a five and Memphis as the 12 they're facing. And I just about just crawled under a desk because I don't know if anybody's been paying attention, but Memphis has started figuring shit out uh, in the last couple of months. They are not the tire fire they were early in the season. And uh, I don't know who's going to deal with the likely lottery talent Memphis has because they are plenty talented. So, I'm putting that bad juju out there now so that everyone can deal with it prior to selection Sunday. Um, but yeah, it's, 
hope I hope for a five because then you're probably getting some sort of plucky mid major that Texas is more skilled and more athletic than over like a you know a six where you're dealing with a somebody like or UNC UCLA who's got some horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was worried about. I was kind of thinking about UCLA coming out of that playing game, and it turns out we didn't have to worry about <laughs> UCLA coming out of that playing game. All right. Well, I think we'll get to that talk in two weeks. Thank y'all for pretending we were football for the past hour. And thank you again to Brittany M and Cole C for sponsoring the show. We really do appreciate it. Sponsoring us through Patreon and uh, joining us on the Hornscast discord. On that note, uh, Johnny, where can we find you? On a, uh, a, a, probably a floaty in a hotel pool in Mexico. That's, that's, uh, that's where I'm going to be for, probably most of the big 12 tournament um hence why as part of why we're doing it this this all this week that and will is a uh, will is betrothed and has made promises very expensive promises so both of us are, are going to be a wall and uh tim doesn't know how to do technology so the, that's just it's just not going to happen um <laughs> so you can find me on twitter at bitter white guy you can find me on substack bitterwhitegut.substack.com. Um, and, uh, I'm just going to spend most of next week more drunk than usual. And Mr. Timothy Preston, the, uh, elder statesman on the podcast when it comes to marriage, where can we find you? Uh, on Twitter, inside Texas hoop, no S and on inside Texas.com. Come hang out with us. We'd love to have you. You guys can find me, your host, Will Bazer on Twitter at W I L L B A I Z E R. And, uh, at the, in front of a bunch of people saying really romantic gushy bs getting mushy Um, to my fiance who i love very much uh because no actually she doesn't listen to this i know oh cute anyways thank y'all for listening we will see y'all later hook them hook them horns